This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at WisdomTree. My co-host is Senior Economist for WisdomTree and Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel. Please note our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products and the views of our guests are their own and not those of WisdomTree affiliates. We have a very interesting show. Uh, we'll be playing a discussion held at the Schwab Impact Conference between Professor Siegel and Rich Bernstein. So you're going to get an extended look at the professor's comments and views of what's happening in the markets. Uh, but that was uh, maybe uh, two weeks ago, Professor. So give us your current takes. It was a little light week for data, um, but what's your current thoughts? Yeah, well, we we got a big relief rally, you know, after last week, after, you know, the, 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 the I won't call it a pivot, but the Powell uh, balance, I would call it. Uh, now, you know, we're looking at both sides. Um, uh, the weak data, certainly from the employment report, basically has taken the December hike uh, off the table, although officially – they will never take anything off the table. As we heard from Powell's speeches today, it is still everything's got to be on the table um, all the time. Um, uh, you're certainly right. It, it is always a, a, a light data week after the um, employment week. And this was uh, one of them. A couple things are, are noteworthy. Uh, jobless claims held in did not increase, um, which is uh, uh, certainly a, a good sign. Uh, we did get uh, some weak um, University of Michigan consumer sentiment um, on Friday, um, and that's gone down for four consecutive months. And uh, what was particularly surprising to me was a jump in inflationary expectations, um, and and that's despite the fact that oil has going down and gasoline is beginning to go down. Uh, it might be that a lot of people, uh, you know, hearing about the uh, Hamas-Israel war are fearful that um, there's going to be a Mideast conflict that will send the price of oil higher, and that might be the cause of the, these jumps in these readings. Powell has mentioned uh, this as in the past as something he watches. However, uh, clearly what he's going to watch the most is the inflation reports. We are going to get inflation uh, next week, both uh, on Tuesday and Wednesday, the con- uh, Consumer Price Index and a producer price index. Um, the uh, CPI overall is supposed to be up only one-tenth, that's the expectation, and three-tenths for the core. Uh, the core would then stay unchanged on a year-over-year basis, but I think we bring the um, overall down to 3.1%, which is the lowest in more than two years. Uh, so I would say that would be a good outcome, 0.1.3. Uh, we do also get, of course, uh, the... Um, we'll get the producer price index on the following day. Uh, we should mention that the, the next meeting, meeting, which is December 13th, uh, uh, the uh, FOMC will actually have both uh, the consumer and the producer price index. They are reported, uh, I believe, both on those two days of the meetings. So they will have another month of data on hand. Of course, we'll have another 
employment report and uh, a lot of other things going on. So it, you know, it's way too early, you know, to uh, to say, you know, you know, uh, what is actually going to happen. Um, uh, again, it is my feeling that with some of this weaker data, unless it really turns stronger, and I don't see it because oil is going down, and we see some of the other commodities going down. Uh, that uh, December is going to definitely be a hold. What will be of interest, of course, in December, and we will talk about that. It'll be it's quite a few weeks from now, but clearly, what is the dot plot for um, for 2024 um, going uh, going forward? Uh, earnings are coming in good uh, again, outside of the oils that are um, you know that have shown weakness. Outside of that, there's a lot of strength. We do not have uh, we have some warnings on Q4. Um, from what I've read, actually, uh, Q4 is being brought down by uh, uh, a big drop in earnings of Moderna and, and Pfizer because of the uh, uh, the the use of the COVID vaccine has gone way down. Um, outside of that, Q4 is looking good, and 2024 is looking good, and that's why I think the the market is very the the market is very very firm. We have a little bounce back in yields, uh, and of course, every little piece of data will jump it around. Um, certainly next week, the CPI, but I keep on looking at that, um, you know, the jobless claims as being the, the uh, real indicator on uh, whether the, the real side of the economy is sleeping, uh, is slipping or not. Clearly, clearly the sentiment down, the weak ISM report, the weak employment report, we've had definitely some weakness, not going to call it recession, call it a slowdown at this particular point, keep our eyes open. And certainly, um, Jay Powell also has to keep his eyes open. Well, very good way to give us your real-time feedback. We had a really special pleasure event at the Union League in Philadelphia just a few short weeks ago. We got extended talks from the professor and Richard Bernstein of of RBA Advisors, one of the really interesting ETF strategists. You're going to hear about the equity risk premium, our stocks versus bonds. What do you think about that? Small caps, what sectors? RBA likes, how to think about bond portfolios, uh, really a deep dive across the markets with these uh, two great strategists, Professor Siegel and, and Richard Bernstein. Play that interview. Well, I figure I'll get a few questions in before the audience is going to not help themselves. But the first question, um, well, obviously a few things happening in the markets. We've got uh, Professor Siegel with Home Field Advantage, so I'm going to give Richard the first <laughs> opportunity here to, to answer. And Professor Siegel had, had a great idea for the first question. Is the equity premium debt with bonds where they are? Somebody actually asked me this week, when are you going to write the book Bonds for the Long Run <laughs> <laughs> instead of Stocks for the Long Run? What do we think? Um, so good evening, everybody. Um, I, I would say, no, the, the risk premium isn't dead. The notion of the risk premium isn't dead. I think what one has to be very careful of in this environment today is how we define equities. And the asset class has been skewed. The asset class is skewed by what um, has become known as the Magnificent Seven. And so if you said, if you look at markets uh, overall and their dominance of most indices as we would talk about them, you'd say the market's uh, still pretty expensive relative to bonds. You'd say, wow, that's, they're so, you know, bonds are becoming more and more attractive. Um, but that misunderstands that the market is really like a seesaw right now. And on one side of the seesaw, we've got seven companies. And the other side of the seesaw, we literally have everything else in the world. And so the fulcrum of the seesaw is the market. 
And so the Magnificent Seven has drawn up what one would consider to be the valuation of the market. But realistically, you know, if you think about, let's just take the United States for a second, what we've called the WE 493 is um, pretty attractive here. And so I, th- I don't think it's so much in terms of interest rates. And I think people are way too caught up in interest rates and not paying enough attention to the definition of the market and, and how you're looking at, at the market. That, that would be my answer to that question. Um. So a lot of people tell me, uh, Jeremy, you know, you're, you're saying five and a half return, five and a half, six percent return on stocks, and I can get five and a half return on short-term treasuries. So where is the premium? Well, first of all, you're comparing apples to oranges. When you talk about five and a half return on bonds, you're talking about a nominal return, uncorrected for inflation. You're talking about return on stocks of five and a half to six, and I'll tell you why. You're talking about a real return. Stocks are claims on real assets, land, capital, plant, equipment, copyrights, trademarks, intellectual property, et cetera, and so on. They will go up with inflation. If you want to make apples to apples comparison, you do stocks with tips. Treasury inflation protected securities. And what do we have there? Well, the 10 year tips, yeah, it's gone up an awful lot from minus one and a half, which I never thought it would ever be negative, but it was, uh, to, you know, basically 2.4%. So there's your return with terrible tax advantage. Make sure it's tax exempt because it has a terrible tax feature. Um, 2.4%. What about stocks? Well, stocks right now are selling for actually slightly, S&P 500 today is selling for slightly under 17 times next year's projected earnings. You should do 12 years, 12 months into the future. It should be in the next 12 months. That's actually the proper way to do it. Just under 17. Now, you could say, oh, yeah, they're always too optimistic there, you know, so let's shave it, you know, down, you know, you know, by five, six, seven percent as they go down. So you're, you know, you know, maybe you're, you're 17 and a half and 18. But that includes a magnificent seven. Mm-hmm. You take out the magnificent seven, it's only at 14. Absolutely. You take out the big stocks, mid and small, it's only at 12 and 11. All right. Now, how do you go from there to return. I've done a lot of research on that. You take the reciprocal of the P-E ratio, which is called the earnings yield. That's a real long-term return on equities. You know, we often hear the lo- real long-term from 1871 to the present, P-E ratio of stocks is 15 or 15 and a half. Well, what's one over 15, 15 and a half? Six and a half percent. And what did I find in stocks in the long run is a long run real return on stocks. Six and a half percent. No coincidence. It's exactly theoretically what it should be. Now, I've done a lot of research that actually says, and empirical research shows that that equilibrium PE ratio is trending upward. If you do a these squares regression on the S&P 500 PE ratio, it's actually 19.8 now. It's an upward slope. And there's good reason for that now. It has, has to do with diversification, transaction costs, and other items in, 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 uh, uh, in the market. So really, I, I actually think 1920 is an equilibrium P-E ratio. I think we're below that equilibrium P-E ratio today. 
So let's take 17 times earnings. So one over 17 is, is what? You know, six and a half percent real return, 6.2% real return, six. So there's the difference. Six real versus 2.4. That's three and a half premium. That's the equity risk premium. And guess what the three, 220 year equity risk premium is? Because I've done it for stocks and bonds, three to three and a half percent. Yeah, it was much larger, certainly, you know, two years ago, three years ago, when tips were, you know, minus what happened. But that's when people thought of bonds as the greatest hedge of all, you know, against all sorts of risks. Uh, we didn't have inflation for 40 years. Bonds became great hedges, and now we do. And now people are worried, and bonds aren't good hedges, and they have to pay investors to hold them. They're not good hedges anymore. Not the hedges they used to be by any means. And you all know what happens to the return on a stock when its beta goes from negative to positive. It has to go up. That's exactly what's happening to bonds. Bonds were the great hedges. Any sort of geopolitical risk, financial risk, collapse risk, even the COVID, anything like that, it was great. It's great except in inflation, and then it's terrible. So you also have to update your probabilities of what you think inflation is going to be in the future. The more you think that that's going to be a problem in the future, the worse bonds are as hedges. Their yield has to go up. Their beta is higher. It fits in really easily. And that's why you had a huge equity premium when it was minus one and a half percent and stocks were given, you know, 5%, 6%. And now that bonds went all the way up. Hasn't really hurt stocks somewhat. Yeah, a little bit. It has some depressing effect, but not much because, you know, it's not hurt by inflation being a real asset. Certainly not as much as bonds. So when I look at the long run, I'm saying it's back to normal. And you guys know the power of compound return. Three to three and a half percent per year advantage. Over 10, 20, 30 years, you can you construct your client's portfolio is going to be a huge difference. So bonds for the long run, not yet. Not yet. Rich, not um, you, you, <laughs> talked, you talked in the Magnificent Seven. Uh, you, you got your team wrote a piece, is investing really this easy? And you talked a little bit about this leadership change. If, if there is a change in leadership from the Bingston 7, who mm -hmm. do you see in the next cycle being those key leaders? So, so a couple of things. One, um, when, whenever we talk about the Magnificent 7, I think we have to understand the risk backdrop and the sentiment backdrop that, that's going on. And my former employer, Merrill Lynch, puts out data on the entire private client system. And if you go back to 2009, which was the beginning of the bull market, Merrill Lynch private client system had an equity allocation of 39%. And their beta was 0.75 of that 39%. Uh, today, it's about 60% equity allocation. That doesn't include private equity or any alternatives, just plain old traditional equity, 60% with a beta of about 1.2. That is a massive change in risk-taking over that period. Not the beginning of the bull market, but today, they're at 60% allocation with a 1.2 beta. Right, people are taking risks. So when people say, it's easy, you're hearing this from your clients, right? Your clients are saying, how come everything isn't up? Right? Because I think everything should be up. They're not scared. In 2009, they were under their desk in the fetal position. All anybody wanted were bonds and high quality dividend paying stocks. 
Nobody wanted equities. Everybody thought the United States was going down the tubes. We were going to be a third world country. And if you had to invest in equities, it should be in emerging markets. Well, look at where they are today. Beta of 1.2, where else would you invest other than the United States, right? Massive change in risk taking. Um, so, so I think um, as, we, as we discuss opportunities and as we discuss what's going on, you have to understand the risk background of what, what's going on here. That this is, this is it's somebody who's up to their schnoz and magnificent sounding, <laughs> right? This is, this is the guy from the local investing club, you know, like, what does that guy know? <laughs> um, so, uh, so anyhow. There, there are a few here at the Union Week. Yeah, I'm sure, there, I'm sure there are. And um, what was the one in the, in the tech bubble? The old ladies, the knitting ladies. Yeah. Remember then it turned out that yeah, they fabricated the their returns. Yeah, and okay. then they audited them and found out yeah, they, they it wasn't, wasn't so. so. They wasn't so, yeah. But they sold some books, so that was good. Um, but anyhow, so, so I think we have to understand what's there. So what, what are the opportunities? So I would say there's, quickly, I'm not going to drag on about this, but two things. One, cyclical, one secular. Cyclical, I think... Um, where my firm disagrees the most with consensus right now is, is the word landing, right? That there's a lot of discussions of hard landing or soft landing. The Treasury Secretary, the Fed Chair have both used the terms soft landing. Um, I think we disagree that the economy is landing. In fact, uh, for those of you who might have taken part in our conference call yesterday, it was sort of, you know, make sure your tray table is in the upright and locked position, fasten your seatbelt, we're taking off. The economy is actually accelerating. Right, if you go back to the beginning of this quarter, the third quarter, sorry, not this quarter, the beginning of the third quarter, July 1, the consensus forecast for GDP in this quarter, in the third quarter, was for 0%. Now it's up to 3%. Think about that, a 3 percentage point change in basically three months for GDP. If you're wondering why has the bond market sold off, think about that. How real GDP forecasts have changed 300 basis points in three months. That's a massive change. Let me just support you on that. Yes. That at the end of last year, the consensus forecast for GDP growth this year was under 1%. Yes, absolutely. Amazing. Under 1%, including the Fed. Right. Under 1%. Under well, one. we had over 2 in the first half. We're going to have 4 to 5 in the third quarter, and you just talked about the fourth quarter. Yeah. Um, it's standard deviations above what was expected, and real interest rates go with growth. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I, this is, with all due respect, it's not PhD type stuff. <laughs> you know? And, um, <laughs> sorry, I had to, I, I didn't really, I didn't have that line prepared, but it just popped into my head. Um, but anyhow, and, and so I think that along that line, the line that I always use for people is to remember when profits are revving up in the economy, you always have to remember the cycle, sounds stupid, but the cycle by definition is determined by cyclicals. So, you know, if corporate profits are revving up, which we think they are right now, if the economy's showing strength, leading indicators have troughed. Look at the OECD leading indicators for the United States. They have troughed. They are starting to accelerate. Uh, we've got a Fed that thinks that it's mission accomplished, right? And, and they're not going to rush to raise rates. This is, this is a signal for, for more. We could argue whether it's going to be real or nominal growth, but it's an argument for more growth, surprising, positive surprises in growth uh, as we look forward. So, so in our portfolios, of course, we're overweight cyclicals, right? We're overweight small caps, we're overweight uh, materials, energy, industrials, emerging markets, all kinds of cyclical things. We are very overweight, long-term, and, and I'll rush on this one. Look, we think the major um, uh, issue for long-term and the, the growth opportunities longer-term are in real productive assets. We think that we are making a transition from what we like to call cute wiener dogs in the metaverse to real productive assets. We are going away 
from all these great technological things that we could argue whether they're really great technological things or not, and we're moving to something that we actually need real productive assets. Why? Because globalization is contracting. Globalization is contracting. And Jeremy mentioned before, what if there's more inflation than people think? We think this is the stimulant for more inflation than people think. Globalization contracting. Inflation is a very simple concept. If demand's greater than supply, prices are going up. Right? And what globalization did by opening markets, we just expanded competition. We just had more and more and more competition. And for 25 or 30 years, more and more and more competition means downward pressure on prices. We all know globalization is contracting. You're seeing this in Eastern Europe. You're seeing it in the Middle East. You're seeing it in the Far East. You're seeing it in Africa. You're seeing it in Latin America. Globalization is contracting. And the bad part about that is that we have a massive trade deficit. We are dependent on the rest of the world for everything. Everything. And when globalization is contracting and you're dependent on the rest of the world for everything, not a good combo. That means what's going to happen, call it reshoring, retooling, rebuilding the American capital stock, call it whatever you want. We think that is the major long-term theme is about uh, asserting, somehow growing, getting back our independence from the rest of the world because it's going to be a necessity. We have no choice. We have no choice in this matter. Somebody, This is going to sound snarky or political. I don't mean it to be at all. Please forgive me ahead of time. Um, but I was discussing something about energy with somebody the other day. And they said, why would you invest in solar panels? Solar panels are going to benefit the Chinese. And I said, have you looked at what you're wearing? Right? Everything that you touch benefits China. And it's about time that everybody woke up and realized this. It's not solar panels. It's everything you're wearing is, bear, is benefiting some other country. Right? Everything you do, everything, look at your phone, look at everything, everything we have, your car, the parts in your car, everything benefits some foreign country. And why don't people understand the national security issues surrounding that? We think the capital markets are going to be smart enough, capitalism will be smart enough to move away from things like Elon Musk wanting to fly to Mars to things that are more realistic, like getting across the Cross Bronx Expressway in under an hour, right? That's, that's the big investment theme, we think, going forward. So that was a long answer. I apologize. Let, but that's... Let, me, let me push back a little. I agree on that, I mean, from China. Mm-hmm. Uh, but three months ago, I was in Mexico. Yeah, uh, we call it nearshoring, oh. not onshoring. Go to Mexico Absolutely. instead of, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's they cool. were, I was shocked. They, they showed me the wages and everything else and transportation costs. We can do it cheaper than the Chinese. Cheaper than the Chinese. Now, I don't know how much and mm-hmm. all the rest. And mm-hmm. Don't forget, a lot of stuff is done in Bangladesh and Vietnam sure. that's not Absolutely. the Chinese and India and all that, which, you know, we don't have quite the friction with that mm-hmm. we have uh, elsewhere. So, you know, we have to be careful about that. Um, and uh, you didn't mention the buzzword of the year, Richard. What's that? AI. Oh, AI. I have the, can you explain? What is that? I haven't heard about that. Uh, I think it's called artificial <laughs> intelligence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the question, see, the, I'm a little bit more optimistic than you because I think we're going to have a, a, a supply-side revolution in productivity. Productivity, if, it, if the growth is from the supply side, mm-hmm. that is downward pressure on inflation. Absolutely, 100%. If, it, if we eliminate you know, cheap sources of labor and all the rest, that's upward mm-hmm. pressure. So we gotta, we got to think about the balance on the nearshoring on that mm-hmm. versus China. we got to think of the pressure of AI 
on downward pressure, higher real growth. I agree with you 100% about real growth being higher than people expect. I mean, it is this year, and I think it's going to be next year, and I think we really could be on the cusp of, of higher real growth. You know, when I was young, younger than you, Richard, back then, do you know what the average GDP used to be? Um, around every year we were in the, three, in the 60s, late 50s and 60s, 4% a year, real GDP growth. Because we had immigration, we had a lot of, mm -hmm. we had population growth, the baby boomers and all the rest, and a faster technological change, actually. And then it kept on going down, 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 down to, you know, about 0.9%. That's a big reason why we had this big drop of yields, mm -hmm. I think, from the, you know, the late 20th century all the way then down to the pandemic. But now, well, first fighting inflation by the Fed, but then looking forward, I'm not saying we're going to get back to that level where 4.5% four, four used to be the mean GDP growth, but we can certainly be way above what is the mean of what the, the Fed thinks it's yeah. going to be and every, all the others, the CBE and everything else going on historical. We, you know, the AI could easily generate 1% plus real GDP growth in the future. 1% plus real is a 1% higher real yield on everything in the future including stocks and bonds. But stocks are fine because they're going to get the profits from them. Bonds are all they're going to do is depreciate in value. That's all they do. They give you paper. Um, so, you know, I think that that, you know, that is definitely going to be a very important, you know, source of turnaround um, over the next 10 years. Yeah. Maybe one follow-up on bonds, and then I'll ask Richard to comment on this too. So, in terms of how you look at the bond market, what you like in the bond market. But, Professor, you, you've been, for the last two years, you've been a very sharp critic of the Fed. Yeah. Now you're probably less critical of yes. the current policy, but do you want to give people your current outlook on where inflation is, the real inflation versus the actual yeah. inflation they look at, and what you think the Fed's going to do? Well, yeah, I, there's still no excuse for what the, what the Fed did. I mean, increasing the money supply in uh, 2020 by more than any other year in the last 150 years. <laughs> Um, basically handing uh, Trump and Biden uh, all the money they needed for a, a record fiscal policy deficit, not telling them to go to the bond market so they could have record low interest rates, basically printing the money. I knew there was going to be a lot of inflation. It was it. And then all of a sudden stepping on the brakes to produce a negative rate of money growth. And the last time we had a negative rate of money growth was in the 1930s, and that scared me. And yes, in the first half of this year, I was really scared. I said, oh, my God, if this continues, this is, this is going to go down. The Fortunately, it is moderated. The economy had enough productivity growth in it, and in and of itself, money supply stopped contracting around well, May this year. It has been rising, again, not at the—it should rise at 5.5% a year. It's been rising around 2-3% a year. It's a little bit on the weak side. Nothing like the craziness that occurred from 2020, from March of 2020 to March of 2022. Mm -hmm where we had an unbelievable rate of growth of money and, and inflation. So we're not, we're out of that situation. But I saw that the economy could withstand, you know, uh, higher real rates than I had thought earlier in this year because of faster growth, because of productivity. Because last year, 2022, was the worst productivity growth in the United States since data on quarterly productivity growth was first computed in 1947, the worst 
and we're rebounding from that. Now we can discuss why it was bad. Is it work from home? We could keep on talking about all sorts of reasons, but it was the worst. It was negative. You know, think about this. We have half the payroll growth this year on average that we had in 2022. We have three times the GDP growth. How is that possible? Only because of the productivity rebound. Productivity is great. It's great for profits, great for real wages, great for, you know, it's, it's real GDP and the growth. It's not good for bonds, it's good for stocks. That's what we have. So with all that, I don't know if you have a take on the Fed, but how, do you, how are you positioning your bond portfolio today? Um, yeah, so the Fed, um, if you follow us on Twitter, you know that we've been extraordinarily snarky with respect to the Fed and, and what they've been doing. Um, I'll, I'll sum up all my comments by saying that when we did hit 27% uh, M2 growth here in the United States, we were rivaling Peru. Yeah. So, you know, not something I think we'd all be bragging about <laughs> in, in a global context that our money growth rivals Peru. Um, but, and, and it, it, from our perspective, that guaranteed that you were going to get more inflation than people thought. Because you just think back to your, you know, introductory economics, monetary policy, MV equals PQ, PQ being GDP, nominal GDP, MV being money and velocity, and nobody could ever measure velocity. But who cares? When monetary growth is 27%, who cares what velocity is? You can make it up and it's still going to be a monster number for what nominal GDP is going to be. And so we just said, we don't know what inflation is going to be. It's going to be a boatload higher than anybody expects, higher or lower. So we just took the over on that one. Um, and, um, uh, you know, I think generally we're still in the, in the camp of, of taking the over, although the over is much, much, uh, uh, much thinner than it was before. Uh, what do we like in bonds? So right now our bond portfolios are a little bit confusing to people. I'll be, I'll be very honest. Because what we've done is we have a kind of a barbell going on in our fixed income portfolios where we have long duration bonds and people see that and they go like, whoa, don't you understand interest rates are going up? Like, what are you, an idiot? Right? Another one of these things, like it's so easy these days. Like, like what are you, an idiot? You don't understand that long term interest rates are going up? And they don't look at the whole portfolio. And they don't see the remainder of the portfolio is very short duration so that our overall duration is, is roughly benchmark duration. We're not making a duration bet really at all right now. But people see the long, the long stuff in there and they go, oh my God, what are you doing? And so why are we doing that? Why do we have this barbell? What we wanted to do, I'm sure you all know corporate spreads are pretty narrow. Another thing that actually argues that growth may be stronger than people think. You know, everybody's saying, well, the, the corporate bond market must be nuts. Why are things so, so narrow? Maybe the corporate bond market isn't so nuts. But it's our expectations of growth that are just too, too pessimistic. We know that spreads are, are pretty narrow. So if they're really narrow, what we're trying to do is we're trying to get a corporate yield without taking corporate risk. And by constructing this kind of odd, odd barbell, we've been able to do that, right? If spreads are wide, you take all the, all, the, all the credit risk you want to take. But when spreads are narrow, why would you take credit risk? It doesn't make any sense. So we've constructed kind of this pseudo um, uh, corporate uh, portfolio by, with this weird set of long-term and short-term uh, instruments. And we are taking some credit risk, but it's at the short end of the curve, not, not the long end of the curve. No, no you're, uh, I was looking at your global equity strategy. could have opportunities to go to cash. How much cash is appropriate today with all the, all the risk? Are we going to see more days like today? Right. So, so um, I, actually, I have to admit, being 
toured around. I have no idea what the market did today. Um, I shouldn't admit that, but I actually have no clue. Um, and um, bond yields went up. Bond yields went up. We got Google down. Did they 10. cross five? Did they no, no, no it, it's halfway. Okay. It went from five to four eighty, and now four ninety. Okay. Okay. So, so. Um, uh, how much cash do you have in the equity portfolio? So first question I get asked all the time, is cash attractive? And my answer is, well, of course it is. Of course it is right now, because that's how the Fed injects monetary policy into the economy, right? They, they, they raise short-term interest rates, and they try to disintermediate the entire economy. That's how they slow the economy. They make it you know, hard for banks to they make it unprofitable for banks to lend. Uh, hurdle rates go up in the economy. They slow down the whole economy. Of course, cash is attractive. That's what they're trying to do. The problem is, forgive me if this isn't right, people fall in love with cash. You forget, you never marry cash. You only date it, right? And so, so what happens is people then fall in love, and then they miss the opportunities. So you know, how much cash should you have? I would argue, in a, and, and I'm, my guess is Jeremy's going to agree with this, you really should never have an outsized amount of cash in a portfolio unless you're in a situation where the entire equity market is monstrously overvalued. I don't think, as I tried to explain before with my seesaw analogy, I don't think that's where you are. So you can have some cash in, a, in, a, in an equity portfolio, but I think it's, it's kind of a way station. Where are you going to with it and what's your next step? But I, I don't think an equity portfolio should ever have uh, uh, you know, measurable amounts of cash for lengthy periods of time. That makes no sense to me. Agreed. In, in terms of the, um, Professor, you want to comment on, he, he, Richard talked about liking cyclicals, liking China, emerging markets. International's been a tough slog for a while. Um, you've got all this geopolitical dynamics today. How do you think about all that in context of a The question market? is always, are you being paid for it? Well, the PE of Europe is 11 or 12, depending on where you are. That's pretty low, really low. I mean, 11 is a 9% earnings yield, 12 is, you know, eight and a half. I mean, these are really good earnings yields from any historical basis. So you don't even need organic growth if you just sit there. I mean, it's been hurt by a number of factors, including the fact that in contrast to the U.S., which is basically energy independent, Europe is not. And um, the fact that it's beholden to Russia um, is uh, a big, uh, viewed as a big negative there. So you have it. Um, I think you are being paid for that risk at these levels. Um, but very honestly, I've been thinking you've been paid for it for quite a while. <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, it's always darkest before the dawn. Uh, you know, uh, you know I, people say, do you want to sit on an 11 PE stock forever? Even if it doesn't grow, 11% in real terms on its Assets, as long as it doesn't, quote, depreciate, that's going to be really good. Um, you know, in contrast to NASDAQ, where you're sitting on 30 PE and you've got to grow really fast organically to make it, you don't even have to grow when you're at 11 PE. You just have to make, you know, year after year, make your money. That's it. Buy back the shares if you don't want to give a cash dividend or whatever. Um, you don't even need organic growth whatsoever to give a return that is actually better than the S&P 500 over a long period of time. But if you depreciate, obviously, you know, then the game is different. I've got some more questions, but let's see from the audience what's on your minds if you have some questions. Same thing, and, and 11 and 12 PE. I mean, it's the same thing. So 
world. But, but I think it's different. I mean, with Europe, I, I'll let you go. Okay. But, I mean, so let me, let me give you an example. Uh, yeah, let me, I mean, yeah. I'll, 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 I'll talk about Are small. Are small cap assets now in private equity? No, 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 no. Um, so here's, here's the way to think about it. Remember I said about the Magnificent Seven. Um, here's the way I would think about it. Are there really only seven growth stories in the entire world? That's an amazingly bearish view of the future, that there are only seven growth stories in the entire world. Think about what that means for the US economy. Think about what that means for the global economy. Think about what that, what that means for corporate survival overall. I mean, that's, that's horrendously pessimistic. And it's just not true. So I, I think when you talk about small caps, you start talking about Europe, you start talking about all these other places. First, we have to decide, are the Magnificent Seven actually magnificent? And the answer is no, they're not. There is nothing special about these seven companies. This is an amazing thing to see. If you're really objective, let me give you an example. We did a screen the other day. We looked for all just US companies that grew their earnings in the last 12 months 25% or more. There were 130 companies that passed that screen. How many of the Magnificent Seven passed that screen? One of them. And it was about number 127 out of 130. Meaning there were about 125 companies that are growing their earnings faster than the Magnificent Seven right now. What is so magnificent when there's 125 companies growing faster than you are? That's the world in which we live right now. That is reality of where we are. Caterpillar Tractor, I'm not endorsing this stock, in case there are any lawyers in the room. I'm not endorsing this stock. But I like to use it as a proxy for like the real productive, ugly economy, right? I mean, Metal Bender, Peoria, Illinois. If there's anybody here from Peoria, I'm sorry. Um, but, but you get the point. It's not a, there's nothing sexy about Caterpillar Tractor. Caterpillar Tractor's earnings have been stronger than Microsoft's in nine of the last 10 quarters. Earnings growth has been stronger than Microsoft's in nine of the last 10 quarters. Stronger than Meta's in nine of the last 10 quarters. Stronger than, um, no, I can't really, uh, let's say a couple of them, it's eight, a couple of them, it's six. There's only one company where the majority of the last 10 quarters in the Magnificent Seven, it's grown faster than Caterpillar, and that is Tesla. But Tesla's under immense margin pressure right now and tons of competition, if you look at what's going on in, the, in, in that marketplace right now. So um, there's nothing magnificent about them. So small caps, yeah. Like, I think, that, you know, Jeremy's point is you, you got to be a little patient. This is not a patient time. Right? Everybody wants, like, you're watching CNBC. My stock hasn't gone up in 10 minutes. Right? I mean, like, this is the mentality of everybody. This is crazy. This is absolutely a crazy environment. For anybody with a human amount of investing intelligence and, and, and patience, yeah, small caps. Yeah, Europe. Yeah, you know, I mean, all these things are remarkably cheap. And their fundamentals are okay. They're good. They're fine. They're improving. There's no reason not to be there other than the momentum of the Magnificent Seven. That's what everybody's investing for. That seems crazy well, to me. One of the sayings that I uh, always emphasize, if you're a short-term investor, you chase earnings. If you're a long-term investor, you chase valuation. Absolutely. Um, that's definitely true. Uh, and I think that's as true today as, as ever. Uh, you know, I mean, let, 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 let's face it. I mean, I, you know, the CRISP data, Center for Research and Security Pricing, that was put out by the University of Chicago that analyzed every single stock that was trading since 1926 to the present. So we have 100 years. 
and Jeremy and I have really, you know, done a lot of it. There is no question that the last 10 years, the last 12, 12 years, has been by far the worst 10 years for value relative to growth in history in 100 years. Um, by a lot. I think it's also true, am I not, that on average, and you're talking about earnings growth, but on average, on average, all right, so after, you know, after the dot-com bubble, when NASDAQ went from 5,000 to 1,000, <laughs> most, can we believe that, 80%, um, basically the P.E. of tech stocks went to the P.E. of the value stocks, which was too low, uh, to be honest. But then they started on a growth path, and we're talking about the Microsofts and all the rest, that is really unprecedented in terms of 10 years of earnings growth that I think exceeded 10 years of value growth earnings by greater than any other 10-year period in history. Mm -hmm. I think I'm right on that. Yes, we've been trying to get those exact numbers, but I think that's generally you know, true. So in a way, you can, I'm just trying to show you, the, you know, what, what's basically happened. So first of all, their PEs were really compressed, and then they started on a growth path in earnings that has not been equaled. So everyone now gives them a big gap on PE. So they've got not only the higher earnings, but the higher, oh, now the higher PE, we're in a, we're in a different world, so I'm going to give them a higher PE. So they've gotten the double, you know, the double push of the PE expansion and the earnings expansion. And, I mean, that's basically the story of value of growth over the last 10 years. Let me give a 30-second pushback in small cap just to hear what you would okay. say to that. So I also love, we lo love the valuation. If you said, what, what are the issues in small caps? You've got a lot more banks, a lot more regional banks. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You've got a lot yeah, more. Yeah, yeah. And their interest costs. I'm doing some studies on how much the interest costs are rising for small caps versus large caps. And large caps are still seeing, they extended their loans. They're like 3%. They're not moving up at all. Small caps are surging interest costs because mm -hmm. they're, they're taking a lot of bank loans that are refinancing. Mm -hmm. So, so a couple of things. Number one, uh, you're absolutely right about banks. We are overweight small cap stocks, and I think at best we are equal weight financials. So I, I agree with you on that one. I think with an inverted yield curve, although it's not as inverted as it was, um, it's usually not a great time to think about financials overall. right? You want a period where the Fed wants financial balance sheets to expand not a time where the Fed wants financial balance sheets to contract, right? Monetary policy, we all forget how it gets injected into the economy through the banking system. And so when we talk about easing, we're basically talking about the Fed wanting the banking system to expand. And when you're tightening, they want the banking system to contract. I mean, that's really monetary policy. So in, in a way, when the, the, if we think interest rates are going up more and the Fed's going to be tightening more than people think, probably not a great time to load up on small cap banks. Right as we're as we have, have seen more recently, um, the other thing about interest costs going up definitely true. Um, I, I don't know if this is uh, a pushback or if it's just a consideration that people should think about. Uh, the advent of, of private debt is really interesting. Not interesting from the point of view of necessarily being an investor. Don't misunderstand the point, but but I think it's interesting in that they are they're lending is basically outside the purview of the Fed. 
right? If you think about the Fed, with the Fed, the way the Fed slows down lending is they raise short-term interest rate. They raise the deposit rate, right? In a very traditional banking sense. Think about it. The Fed raises short-term interest rates. Bank deposits become more expensive. In other words, the cost of capital for a bank becomes higher. Um, that makes the profitability of the marginal loan less or makes it unprofitable. Lending slows down. The economy slows, right? And so it's that deposit rate that really affects uh, bank lending. And that, that's what the Fed's trying to do. Private debt has basically a zero cost of capital. And if they're smart, it's a negative cost of capital. It's a negative deposit rate. What I mean by that is they get paid on capital committed, right? I love this. This is why I'm so jealous of alternative managers, because you don't even have to give them your money yet, and you're paying them fees. I love that, right? I, I, everybody here is, I'm sure, dying to sign up with RBA. Start paying us a fee because you're thinking of investing with us or something. I don't know. But that's what, that's what the private world is all about, is is getting fees on capital committed. So if you're really smart, you're getting a negative interest rate on your deposits. You don't even have the deposits yet, remember, and you're getting paid on those deposits. Or let's assume that's not happening, that's a zero cost. And so one of the things I think the Fed is not thinking of enough is the effect of private debt on the tightening of monetary policy. One would think that with the Fed tightening monetary policy, uh, raising Fed funds by 525 basis points, we would see massive contraction in financial conditions. Financial conditions have, have tightened, but not massively so. And we would argue one of the reasons, not the sole reason, one of the reasons that that's happening is private debt. And, you know, a lot of private debt firms are bigger than, than regional banks now, right? And so anecdote for a second. Um, some of you may have been at the, um, the Forbes Shook conference in, in Las Vegas and, and of course, we flew out there, and the president of the firm and I were sitting across the aisle from each other. Behind us, right behind us, was a guy from Aries, right? I'm sure you know, all know Aries, you know, the, the private debt firm. And so uh, everybody was getting on. They were all going to Las Vegas to this, to this Shook conference, the Forbes Shook thing. And they were all walking by. Nobody said hello to me. Nobody said hello to the president of the company. The guy from Aries, it was like a wedding reception, <laughs> right? It was like, hey, how are you? Are we playing golf? Where are we going to dinner? What's going on? I mean, it was like everybody getting on the plane knew this guy from Aries. That's kind of, it's a funny story, and it's a stupid anecdote, I get it, but it does show what's, what's going on in the private equity land and, and how the Fed is probably not considering the full extent of, of what private debt is, is doing in the economy. And they've been moving down and down and down in, in, um, in market cap, getting back to your original question. Well, and also I think part of the reason for the depression of small caps is the banking system. Don't forget, Absolutely. small cap firms don't have as much access to the outside market. I mean, you know, Microsoft or the big firms that it may not like interest rates have gone up, but they can get as much as they want. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the small firms got to rely on these banks and these banks have tightened their standards and their deposits are down yep. since SVB. Yep. Um, and only very minor recoveries over the last uh, several months. And so they're, you know, you know, the, you know, the, the Fed fund rate is 533, but their rolling rate might be seven, eight, nine percent. And that, that's um, that's hurting them relative to the big caps. Going back to the U.S. markets, uh, which sectors of the market do you see as having the most promising outlook next 12 months? And also second part would be we have a little more than two months left this year. Um, for this year and next year, do, do you see presidential cycles playing out? Um, well, usually the third year is supposed to be a good year, right? Yes. 
And it's not a good year so far. Well, it's an okay year, I guess. I mean, outside of the Magnificent Seven, it's not a good year. Right, exactly. Uh, it's like a flat year. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think we're likely, you know, I mean, September and October are rough. Um, November and December are generally better. And um, who knows? Now that we have a Speaker of the House, who knows? Um, maybe the government won't shut down on November 14 or 16 or whatever. Um, so we might get some, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm mildly optimistic for November, December, and I'm optimistic for 2024. Um, I'm not going to comment on sectors. I'm going to leave that to uh, Richard. So um, I won't comment on the presidential cycle, um, but, but I will comment on, on sectors. Um, we, um, we are overweight, uh, really anything cyclical that you could think of. Late cycle, late cycle cyclical which would be you know, energy, materials, industrials. I think our biggest sector overweight is industrial sector, um, which I would argue, by the way, is, is the best long-term growth sector out there right now. Um, I'll give you something to back that up in a second. And um, as I said, you know, anything kind of cyclical. We're not early cyclical. We're not, not housing. Uh, you know, none of that, that type of stuff, autos, none of that, uh, or retailing necessarily, but late cycle. And then we're also overweight, um, actually some defensive sector still, consumer staples and healthcare. Uh, not tremendously so. We've been reducing that, um, since the summer, uh, slowly as the profit cycle began to accelerate, we began to reduce our defensive stuff, but we're still slightly overweight some of the defensive stuff. So our portfolio looks very late cycle slash defensive. That's kind of where, where our portfolio is right now. Um, okay, so I said about uh, why, why do I like industrials so much? So this is um, a little snarky, I will readily admit. I'm sure everybody knows ARK, A-R-K-K, right? The ARK Innovation Fund, either famous or infamous, depending on which side of the coin you come down on. Um, uh, and um, ARK actually came public nine years ago this month. It was October of 2014. And over that nine-year period, small and mid-cap industrial companies and small and mid-cap capital goods companies have outperformed ARKK. I'll say that again. Nine years, small and mid-cap industrial companies have outperformed ARKK. Right? It's also sexy. It's also wonderful. But the economy is focused on, the stock market is actually focused on things we need, um, not on pie-in-the-sky ideas that should reside really in venture capital land, not in the public markets. And um, I just think that's an interesting little factoid. And we're Long-term, I will... You know, go toe to toe with anybody about the future of the industrial sector. I, I think it's the growth sector in the United States. Jeremy may disagree with that. Um, I like the valuations. Yeah. As I say, when when you're when you're valued eleven, twelve times earnings, you don't have to grow that fast at yeah, all. You don't. I mean, just make your money, keep your size, and keep your return, and um, you're going to do really well. Yeah. Exactly. Um, Right. It's, it's, it's the price at which you buy an asset. You know, one of the big stories um, that, that I tell in stocks for the long run is, uh, you know, you're, you're in the early 1950s before the computer. IBM was an indexing uh, yep. company. And you have a choice of investing in ExxonMobil or IBM. And uh, if you take the next 60 years, IBM growth of dividends, growth of earnings, growth of revenues per share, or any basis you want that Wall Street looks at was far superior to Sandra of New Jersey, which became ExxonMobil. But over those 60 years, you got a much bigger total return from Standard Oil of New Jersey than you did from IBM. This 
was when they invented Univac and the computer and became 80% of the computer business. Um, again, what mattered in the long run was you were buying IBM at 30 to 40 times earnings and you were buying ExxonMobil at 15. And that made all the difference. Yep. So, I mean, what is your, what is your long, you know, what is your time frame? What sort of a portfolio are you setting up? Um, I know you guys, which is one reason I don't manage money, is have to, <laughs> have to, at least every year, if not every quarter, have to address your shareholders who want to know why they're not making money every quarter. Um, and, uh, you know, you say you're setting it up for the long run, but people's patients are... Um, Psychology is not there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Jeremy said something that's, that's really important that I think people have forgotten about. Somebody actually said to me recently, valuation doesn't matter anymore. They actually said that to me, and I was pretty shocked. I thought that was a very telling moment, right? You think about these things. Somebody actually said that. And, and, you know, a lot of you run your own businesses. Here's the way to think about it, okay? If you were selling your business, wouldn't you want to sell your business at a very high valuation on your business? And if you were buying another RIA, wouldn't you want to buy it at a very cheap valuation? Right? Valuation always matters. It always matters. Just think about your own business and how you would value your own business or value somebody that you were trying to take over. Valuation always But matters. Richard, this is related to what you said. If you're a one-day trader, valuation oh, yeah, right. doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're a day I trader. mean, that's... And as people's... Time frame gets shorter and shorter, and the way that they regard it, Absolutely. you know, look what happened to the meme stocks. It had nothing to do with valuation. Nothing at all. I mean, and that's what they, if they want to buy that and want to do it, they have, it's a game of poker that they have to outsmart everyone else, and that's all they're interested yeah. in. And their time frame is this big, and we have one day options that are more active yeah. than anything else now. I mean, Crazy. you know, and everyone's, you know, everyone's ability to focus for long periods of time seem to be going down. Um, uh, our attention span is, uh, you know, going towards zero. And, and that's what they call it. So, yes. So when these people say day to day, valuation doesn't matter for the movement of stocks, they're 100% right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Not, I'm with you on that. And absolutely. so, and what else is new? Yeah. Uh, you know, but if, if, if the world's time frames are being telescoped because of whatever factors, mm -hmm. then obviously they're going to believe it. Right. Getting back to your other discussion about bonds not serving as a good inflation hedge or a good hedge anymore, um, I get calls from a lot of insurance companies who have a suggestion that annuities would be a good alternative as a hedge. What do you think of that? Well, annuities are, that are based what, on equities and on the on, hedging. I mean, yeah. Equities. I mean, and what are the other low ball uh, alternatives you suggest? Well, I mean, listen. Um, one of the first things that struck me when I did Socks for Long Run, um, you know, going back to 1802, was the dollar had no inflation from 1802 to the beginning of World War II, basically, very slight. Um, the return on equities was 6.7% per year after inflation. Since the beginning of World War II, we've had 2,500% cumulative inflation. In other words, a dollar is worth less than a nickel today. And the real return on stocks has been 6.7% after inflation. The same as it was before. 
inflation makes no difference. In the long run, as I say, stocks are not good hedges. They're not great hedges against inflation. They are perfect hedges against <laughs> inflation. Um, and if you're devising that sort of portfolio and that's what people are worried about, and, and they are today more because people talk about deficits and inflation like they, you know, I mean, the standard before, you know, COVID and, and the recent inflation, oh, technology was going to continue to drive prices down, no inflation, blah, blah, blah. That was the, the, you know, the modus that everyone thought about. Now they're not thinking that way. Now I'm worried about deficits. I'm worried about inflation. I've got to protect it. You've got to own real assets. What about bonds coming back to this? Are they, could they be a head? There's this, in the book you talked about, and you were, you were alluding to this, this sort of hedge on stocks. Like it, you were willing to pay this insurance premium because they were this good hedge, bad news for stocks, bonds go up. Is there a, what's the yield level where they become that better hedge? It feels to me like you're getting to a real yield where it's going to be yeah, I mean, like a better um, hedge soon. Uh, so, you know, we, we have a rolling five-year correlation that has gone positive now. And in fact, the Wall Street Journal, just, did uh, you see that article just a day or two ago? They did what, you know, that same thing, the rolling correlation. They had a three-year rolling correlation between stocks and bonds that had been negative for 20 years from 2000 to the pandemic and has turned sharply positive like it was in the 70s and 80s. And they talked exactly about the things that we talked about in the book that they no longer are, are the, the uh, hedges that they once were. Um, and you demand a high, yes, yeah, if things are not the hedges, if your beta goes up, I mean, <laughs> your yield goes up. It has to, to induce you to buy it. And I think that is a lot of the why the yield has gone up. And faster growth that you look, that's another reason. I mean, it's never just one factor. But bonds are just not seen as that great hedge. I, I, I always, I remember. Was, it was negative yields. You had negative yields that made them a terrible hedge at negative one and a half percent. Yeah, now, you're an insurance fund. You know, look, at you guys buy insurance for your house and everything like that. You don't expect to make money on it. But if something bad happens, it pays off. That's a negative expected return. But real, you know, in real terms, oh, almost in nominal terms. I mean, in Europe, it was negative nominal returns, but. In the United States, we never got quite to nominal. We got 57 basis points on the 10-year, but we got 10-year tips going to minus one and a half. And it was that good a hedge. And by the way, I mean, it's what I taught, you know, the way you teach asset pricing and return. If something is a great hedge with a negative beta, it has to return less than a risk-free rate. Could be negative. Could be negative, just like an insurance policy. Nothing is unusual, but sometimes I read things like, these people obviously didn't take finance, or they did, they didn't understand any of it. <laughs> um, it was, to me, what was happening was very clear. Um, it became the great hedge. And it started with the financial crisis of 98, 97, when ooh, the stocks went up during that crisis, and inflation was conquered by Volcker and the tight thing, so we had 40 years of no inflation. That wasn't a problem, it became the hedge. Uh, back to the, uh, I guess, the relative cheapness argument uh, behind Europe. Um, couldn't one uh, make the assessment that if you adjust for debt 
demographic trends, productivity, the construct of the ECB, the entitlement program uh, quandary, that they're fairly priced or? You could. Um, I mean, I, I, I guess U.S. deserves better. Um, does it, it has 17 and Europe is 11. Is that six points factor enough into that? I mean, that could be a very good debate about the fact that you're talking about. Um, can I can I just add one thing while you're while you're thinking? Yeah, it's okay. Um, Wall Street Journal. I think it was the Wall Street Journal. Maybe it was the Financial Times. Had a had, I think it was the Financial Times. Had a chart this week that showed debt to GDP of the United States and debt to GDP of the eurozone. Debt to GDP. I can't even say it. Debt to GDP is what I'm trying to say. In the United States is much higher than in Europe. Well, not that much higher. No, it's about no, seven. no government debt. It was government debt. No, it's about a hundred percent here. It's about 70, 80% there. Yeah, but it's uh, okay. exactly. No, my point is. is and, it, and it's higher in, in uh, Italy, it's like 110, 20, in Greece, it's 140. And, right, it depends where you are. Uh, right, it depends on where Euro, you are. But, but, you but know. I'm just saying, valuation of the Eurozone, uh, I, know, I, I don't think you could say not, that it's cheaper, that you have to adjust because it's got more debt. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. I don't think, you know, I don't think. You have to also measure what the assets of a country is, well, how much of the yeah, property yeah, yeah. Do they own. I mean, there's a, yeah. there's a very complex set of. So is demographic drivers the bigger Well. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, well, that's, that's true. Um, that, uh, I'll make two points. So GDP growth is not returned is something I learned in uh, the professor's book that sort of GDP growth often negatively correlated to stock returns because it's priced at that way. Mm-hmm. But Europe is also selling all over the world. So it's not their demographics. They're selling into the US. They're selling into emerging markets. So th- they're global businesses that aren't just relying on Europe's GDP growth. And, and, and you know what? We make that one, one of the reasons. I'm always, you know, the Buffett indicator I've been a huge critic of the Buffett indicator, which is the value of U.S. stocks versus U.S. GDP. I've said that's a false comparison from from go. I mean, it's It's back in 19 when he when he started this back in 1958, 62, you know, 98% we were selling to ourselves. And now it's 50% of the profits of the S&P 500. It's a global thing. It's not Mm -hmm. just a local thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, the biggest ratio, you know, is like from Hong Kong and other countries that have, you know, much. I mean, that's just a wrong. That's just a wrong metric. Your own stock values versus your own GDP. As Jeremy is pointing out, you sell to the rest of the world. It's the world GDP, and you're a fraction of it. And if you can gain part of it, you deserve an awful lot higher valuation than if you don't. Um, quick one. Um, so I recently had a uh, company, and uh, I asked them what percentage of their portfolio was mid-cap and large-cap. And I want to ask you, do you think it's fair that we should expand the range of what we consider mid-cap, given that we have trillion-dollar market cap companies, that they should sort of redefine the range of what's a small cap, what's a mid-cap, and what's a large cap now, given that we have multi-trillion-dollar companies and the market's grown? And should they adjust for that, do you think? Just just wanted your opinion on that. I've I've never, in one of the books I wrote many years ago, uh, I complained about the notion that there are cutoffs for what is large cap, mid-cap, and small cap because the markets move. Right. And so I would agree with that. I, I don't think he cut it off by market cap necessarily. Um, we're kind of forced into that a little bit as managers because 
uh, the benchmarks kind of do. But, but um, realistically, as a manager, you shouldn't think that way, that it's got to be above or below a certain dollar or euro or whatever value. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, it's um, done in percentiles then. Yeah, and yeah, percentiles is great. But, but it's fun. not even, you know, but we know also because of Sarbanes-Oxley and others, we don't have enough companies. You know, the Wilshire 5000 can't find even 4,000 companies anymore. Uh, I mean, so we do have a different capital market. We don't have those small caps that existed and then were bought up. They're bought up before they exist as a private valued company. Um, And that's a different uh, dynamic today. Uh, I'm not sure what it means. I don't know if you have an opinion about that, uh, Richard. I I think it's... it's, um well, it's a function. That's also a function of, of lower interest rates and cheaper cost of capital and private equity buying everybody they can find. Um, but it's, a, it's also Sarbanes Oxley. Oh, you yeah, don't want to be. I mean, you could be private at a much lower cost, and yes. now it's much better for me to be bought up by Google. And yeah, yeah, yeah. and and you know they have the they have the structure already. Why should I pay for it? Yeah. I mean, and it's unfortunate because it it lowers. The diversification in the market and the ability to, you know, you know, I mean, you know, the, there's that whole debate about if we break up some of these tech firms, will they actually sell for higher or lower mm. than what they sell for today? There is, I mean, it, it's a valid point. I mean, it, 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 it has to do with, I mean, we, we've gone through cycles on that. You know, back in the 60s, um, you, know, we, you know, we had Link Temple Void. And we had people that were doing the conglomerates who mm-hmm. had abilities to do, uh, you know, uh, efficiencies that were unknown to everyone else. And then finally, they just collapsed of their own. And then they broke them up in individual pieces that were worth more than what they found. I mean, this sort of idea of, of, of that. But, th- but a lot of it has to do with the burdens of being a public mm, company today compared to what it used, used yeah. to be. Hey, thank, thank you very much. Um, I think it's fair to say there's a much higher percentage of corporate balance sheets today that are comprised of intangible assets than there were, say, 30 years ago. So does that complicate the distinction between growth and value? Do we need some new analytical tools? But how do we deal with that? I mean, like twice the percentage now is intangibles versus the caterpillar plant. But that's why I don't like book value. I mean... Because book is, what is book anymore? You, you make a, an, an excellent point, and, I, and I, I talk about that in my, in my book, about book value not, not being proper. But then again, they, you, know, you expense R&D when it should be capitalized. I mean, you can capitalize you know, some of it, and then you... you so now you've got, got to go relative to earnings, I think is, a, I think is better. Than, I, I, I dismiss... I dismiss and there's papers written, and I talk about it. You are not in other- I actually just wrote a piece on this. So I did a, I did an, I did yeah. a calculation like two weeks ago. We showed the S&Ps about 25% cheaper. If you, it goes from a 22 to an 18 if, on a trailing 12-month basis if you did this expensing of the R&D that we're talking about here. And the tech premium, instead of being like 35 versus 18, is the, the, the multiple drops in half. The, the, the premium for tech drops in half. The, the sort of non-tech people don't have any adjustment on this, and the tech comes way down. So it's a, we can send you that little blog piece on, on that. In other words, if you capitalize their R&D, and you increase their profits. So yes. their profits are actually greater than 
than yes. what they report. And the tre- now the trend for R&D will matter, because right, if they're ramping up R&D, it makes them look much cheaper today. If they're slowing down R&D, it'll make them look more expensive. Right. But because they're in a ramp up cycle, today they look cheaper because it's going to expense over the future. So we have something for you on that. Yeah, I mean, that was the original pharma. Book to value was the, the criterion. And now you can go by earnings, you know, or, or cash flows if you want to. Um, but yeah, you bring up a very valid point. So can I add one little thing to that? It's a little, a little bit esoteric. Bear with me on this one. Um, asset values are discounted with different lives and therefore have different durations. And so as interest rates fell, longer duration assets, which I would argue in many cases are intangibles, the value of those intangibles went up. If interest rates are going up, long duration asset values will suffer the most and intangible value assets will come down, right? So it depends not only on are they tangible or intangible, but the expected life that goes along in valuing the asset. So think of it as a 30-year zero or a five-year note, you know, where, where are, you, are you getting any return today from it? Is it just something in the future? All those kind of things. And I'm not a good enough accountant to tell you exactly how that works out and everything, but I think it's something right. that- But that's also the way the market thinks. I mean, why, why, have, why has NASDAQ gone down more than S&P, you know, over the, since the surge of yields mm. that we've had oh, yeah. recently? Yeah, 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 that's part Although of it. still people want to go in there and then- then they say, oh, if there's a recession, I want to go in there. So then they, they get back up mm. <laughs> off the floor after being murdered by a rise in interest rates. And you, know, <laughs> you can see the way that people think, oh, yeah, oh, you know, where else am I going to go? I mean, good. And they move back in. But the, you know, the pressure on yields, I mean, you saw it today, you saw um, you know, what's going on over the last three or four weeks when, you know, when yields of 10-year go to 5% has pressured the long assets mm-hmm. more. Absolutely. This will be the last question of the night. Thanks for uh, taking my, my question. No pressure. Uh, so you talked about the third quarter, you know, GDP growth being much stronger than expected. I have difficulty understanding how that translates into a 10-year steepness. Um, we didn't really talk about the poor shape of our government uh, balance sheet. You know the significant you mean the increase going forward. Exactly right, and and the additional uh, supply and higher for longer. So I welcome your comments on that. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk. Then you can talk about. It. Yeah, sure. I mean, I am not a deficit alarmist, although I do know talk about. You know, a lot of what affects markets are talk, whether it's true or not. Uh, <laughs> it's true. Is that true? It is true. All right. I mean, you know, we, we have $1.7 billion trillion deficit. That's 5% of our debt, which is $30 trillion. And we're growing at 5% a year. That's nominal. Don't forget, you're going to have to be nominal when you talk about, because you have a nominal debt. And you're talking about nominal GDP. That's inflation plus the real. So you have 2%, 2.5% real. You have 3% inflation. You have 5 5.5%. So, you know, I know going forward that goes up. And I know people have been making a lot of noises. My God, if, these, if interest rates are higher for longer, now, this is an important point. Interest rates are higher for longer. If, if you take a look at even the CBO and others' forecasts for deficits going forward, you see it definitely steeper. But this is an important point. If those higher real interest rates are accompanied by higher growth rates of real GDP, mm-hmm. It's caused by AI or whatever factors you want to, 
that effect disappears on the ratio. You're going to get the GDP to go up at the, then the same rate as the interest rate has made the debt go up, and you don't get in any more trouble. With all that said, by the middle of the 2030s, according to the CBO, we start really ratcheting up because of the older population and the Medicare expenses and all that. But that is 10 years away. Um, I'm just saying. So I'm not saying there's no deficit problem. Uh, you know, I'm just saying I look at it today and see the growth enough to absorb, nominal growth enough to absorb the deficit that I see. Anyways, Richard. So I'm going to sort of skip this question. I think it's easier to talk about religion these days than politics. <laughs> so, um, so I'd like to. Is to the move deficit this on. politics, Richard? I'd, I'd really? Like, I'd like to I move this. Economics. I, I'd, I'd like to it. move this off to: Is there a God? <laughs> I think that's a, that's a much easier question to answer than what's going to happen with the deficit and the politics surrounding the solution to the deficit. Um, I, I personally believe that that um, uh, the deficit is a reflection of the populace. And the, the one, nobody in Washington, neither side of the aisle is, uh, we have no, we have no vertebrates in Washington these days. We're loaded with invertebrates on both sides of the aisle. And because of that, uh, the deficit reflects that and, and the irresponsibility that goes along with that, whether it's spending or tax cuts or anything. And I could, I've written about this extensively in the past. Um, and, um, uh, I view the deficit as being, if you want to solve it, it's an easy thing to solve. But you have to have an amazing set of leaders in Washington to do that, and it's going to mean slower growth for a longer period of time. That's just not going to happen. Well, let me let me say what I've been saying for 20 years. When people said, "When the government the government will do nothing about the deficit unless people start screaming about it," and when will they only start screaming about the deficit when interest rates go up enough to hurt? Yeah. Period. When you get a crisis, basically. Well, that's it. Yeah. No other case. Like England, just recent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that, I mean, that's all there is to say. Are they up, up now? No, because they're blaming it on the Fed, not on the deficit, although people are talking about it. But could that happen over the next, you know, five years, 10 years, where rates go up and foreigners say, I'm not buying because I don't see deficits and all that, and homeowners go crazy and no one's buying houses and everything, and cost of capital goes way up? They'll fix it yeah. because enough people are screaming. If there's no screaming, there will be nothing done. Period. That's the way it works. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note. <laughs> on that note. Thank you for a great panel. Thank you, guys. Thank, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.